very thick with meaning. Uh, it's one of those things where we'll be looking at a lot of phrases and words, and so I've, I'm making the notes uh, a little more beefy, in a sense, uh, to kind of help you uh, follow along as we kind of look at these, at these verses and then try to extrapolate from them uh, all that Paul is saying. Uh, I think, hopefully you'll see this, uh, you'll begin to understand some of the, um, why it's so important that the New Testament was written in the Greek language, because it is very precise, and with that precision, we're able to uh, comprehend, it's not so much the limits, but maybe I, I would say the exactness of the way that God is being described, so that we can really understand what he's saying. And then you'll be able to see why it is that, as you'll see with some of the comparisons that we make, that when some of the cults around kind of take a verse and try to change its meaning, you'll be able to see how it is we know that what they're saying is incorrect and that they've not gone deep enough into the text. Remember that when you get into the Greek, and again, you don't have to know Greek to do that, but when you begin to get into the Greek language and you begin to look at a word and you look at this definition and then sometimes you want to look at the family it comes from, uh, there's books that will help you to understand other words that the writer could have used but didn't and why that's important. And then we've talked before, there are times we mentioned the, a tense like of a verb and how that adds to our understanding. What we need to remember is that no matter how much of the Greek you get into, it never changes what the verse is saying. It helps us to have a deeper or better or more comprehensive understanding or maybe a clear understanding but it's never different. Now, what I mean by that is that still the primary thing that helps us to understand what is being communicated is always going to be context. All right, so that's, uh, for example, even if you're looking at a word, to understand how that word is being used by that author, you want to look at the context of that sentence, of that paragraph, and then sometimes the book. What is he talking about? What is he focusing on? You know, all those types of things. And so, um, and the reason why I say that is because sometimes an individual can uh, refer to the Greek, and if we don't know Greek, it can sound correct, because they don't really know, and it can be extremely misleading. Uh, and a lot of individuals who, are, um, who, who teach in some of the various cults, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc., you know, sometimes they can be very skilled. Now, they, they have, they've been probably, in most cases, maybe taught wrong, and they think they're correct, uh, but again, remember, we can figure out what a text means. So we can say that a group or an individual is wrong about something, or they can say that I'm wrong about something. There'd be reasons for that. Now, the reason why we need to emphasize that is because, again, of the culture of our day. In our culture, there's this idea that to say that someone is wrong about something is wrong. That, it's, uh, that you are either being arrogant um, or that you're somehow putting them down, or you're saying they are less than you are. That's not what's going on. Um, has nothing to do with that. Uh, what we're looking at is what is being communicated, what is being said. And of course, what we believe is because the Bible is the word of God, it is of greater importance that we get it right and that we understand, and God wants us to. Uh, so that's why oftentimes you hear, you hear others say this, that when it comes to many theological concepts, it cannot be adequately communicated in a sound bite. 
Like you, you can't, you're not going to get it with a 15 second response or a 30 second response. You know, there's going to be more to it uh, than that. And so that's why God encourages us to read the Bible and then to study the Bible and then also to meditate on the Bible. And that's why then uh, in a church, <clears throat> if the pastor is doing what he should be doing, uh, no, matter, no matter what his intelligence level, he is going to be spending a large amount of time preparing for whatever he's, say, whatever he's teaching or preaching. Um, that would be the norm. All right, so some of the preachers that I like that I think are maybe some of the best ever are very intelligent men, and yet those men will spend 20, 30, or 40 hours in preparation to preach a one-hour message. So that, that's kind of, to me anyway, that's kind of the standard. Um, not that everybody who preaches is going to spend 40 hours doing it, and sometimes you can be in a situation where, you, where it's difficult to spend 20 to do one sermon because you're, you're trying to teach and preach three or four times a week and all that is different. However, uh, that is one of the primary tasks um, of a pastor. And so that's really very important. So, and normally, uh, you can tell um, when you're listening to someone if they've spent that kind of time. Maybe not the first time you hear them, but if you hear someone consistently five, six, seven times, if you've heard or been exposed to really good in-depth preaching, then you'll be able to tell. Uh, so again, but that, that is what God wants us to do. He wants us to go deeper. Uh, he wants us to really think about these things. And again, what we're dealing with is the word of God. And it's going to have, and it's supposed to have a very profound effect on us uh, for the rest of our lives. So there's always going to be the idea that even if you've been a believer for 30 years, we are continuing to grow. You may not be learning as many new things as you did before because you've been growing for 30 years. But there's always this aspect of growing where we are living out more of the Word of God. You know, we, we, our heart continues to change because we don't ever arrive. And so we need to be under uh, the Word of God continuously. So even uh, for a man who maybe be, have been preaching for 30, 40, 50 years, and even if he does incredible uh, expository preaching, if we begin to uh, become lax on our reading and studying of Scripture, that pastor, like everyone else, is in danger of going backwards, of regressing in his life. It doesn't mean he's going to suddenly forget things, because he'll probably remember more things, uh, than we, you know, forget more things than we'd ever even known. But the way that human nature is and how weak the flesh is, we have a propensity begin to move back towards the flesh or move back towards living life or reacting to life in the flesh, becoming irritable, becoming judgmental, whatever it happens to be. A lot of those things can easily come back no matter how long we've been studying the Word of God. So we all have to have that day. So it's, it's almost like, again, it is like phys eating physically. If you've had great meals for 50 years of your life, you don't say after 50 years, you know, I really don't need to eat for a while. I think I'll just wait a couple of years because I've had so much good food. It's not going to work out real well for you. All right? Now, obviously, we don't want to continue to eat a buffet every day. Uh, but again, the idea is, is that we need a continuous, you know, it's, it's what we're eating on a regular basis that's important. Um, and so same thing when it comes to the Word of God. So, verse 15. Speaking of Christ, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
So we spent about 15 minutes last week <coughs> talking about uh, image and that what is being emphasized here is that Jesus is an exact uh, and, and all, the, all the definitions would be a little weak because he's an, he's an exact duplicate of God, but he's not someone else, okay? He is God. That's, there can be confusion at times because of the complexity of who God is. But the idea is, is that there is nothing about God that is true, that is not true of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect God-man. And so he is divine in every way, and that's what's being expressed there. And so we spent uh, quite a bit of time going through a lot of quotes and definitions and things to really help us to grasp what Paul meant by the word image um, and really how deep that word is. So what we're going to be looking at uh, tonight will be the only thing we'll look at, but it's also he is the firstborn of all creation. All right, so some translations of the Bible... I don't think they do this on purpose, but they do imply that Christ is included in the created universe. In other words, what that means is that Christ, along with the rest of creation, was created. Right? Now, Christ is not created. He's not a created being. And so that's why sometimes when it comes to translations, even then we always have to study to make sure that it's as accurate as it could be. Uh, because sometimes a sentence can mean one thing to us. And someone else looks at it and it means something different to them just because of, how, of the word order. Um, so uh, if you look, I think I have in your notes there a, a list of several different translations in the way that they translate that last, those last five words. Many of them are the same. So New American Standard, it says the firstborn of all creation. Uh, King James, the firstborn of every creature. The firstborn over all creation in the NIV. The New King James is the firstborn over all creation. The Christian Standard Version is the firstborn over all creation. Uh, the Complete Jewish Bible says he is supreme over all creation. Uh, and so the idea, the, the word firstborn is very, very important um, uh, because of what the word firstborn means. So what happens is, is that this is one of those passages where some of the cults, especially Jehovah's Witnesses, will come along, and if you ever have them at your door, they will take, like, this verse, and they'll say, where the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the firstborn. And, of course, they take that in its meaning in English. And so they will ask you, because I've had them ask me before, do you have a son? Yes. Do you have a son who's your firstborn? Yes. Is your son you? No. See? Jesus can't be God because like you have a firstborn, God has a firstborn. That's their logic. Uh, that's, what they've been, that's what they've been taught and that's what many of them believe to be true. So, let's take a look at this. Yes? On the page, mm -hmm. you know, when it's saying he is supreme over all creation, mm -hmm. well, that's true. I know, that's correct. But, but what I'm saying is yeah, it's a translation. Is that, is that like a Messianic Jewish? It's just, it's, uh, it's just the name of the translation. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like, so you have NIV, New King James. Okay, so all so your translations have names of what they are. And there is one called the Complete Jewish Bible. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty good. non-Messianic Jews to be Well, no, because remember, they, a non-Messianic non Jew would not read the New Testament. That's true. So they would not be interested in that. 
All right, so um, this verse in Colossians, and then let me uh, read to you what it says in the book of Luke in chapter 2. The same word is used there to describe how Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. And it says that she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no roof for them in the inn. So again, Job Witness will will point to Luke 2.7, and then they'll say, well, the exact same Greek word is used in Colossians as it is in Luke. So that then proves that Jesus, once again, is not God, uh, but that he is a son of God, and he is part of God's creation because he has not always existed. Uh, And so again, that's the, the logic that they use. So again, firstborn, as used in the scripture, does not necessarily mean the first one who was born or the first one who's created, but it, is, but it often signifies priority in importance or rank besides birth order. All right? So that's how that word is used in the Greek language. Okay? So that's the first thing we want to make sure we grasp, is even though sometimes there's an English definition of words, which doesn't mean it's wrong, but you get a more precise meaning of what is meant by the Greek. Uh, and like English, remember a word can have more than one definition. Okay, so example, if you use the word plate, well, there's a plate that you eat off of, and there's also a plate on a baseball diamond. Very completely different uses, but they're both spelled exactly the same way. So context or word usage helps you to know um, what is most frequent. So most of the time, when it comes to the word plate, the word plate, more often used in English, is referring to a plate you eat off of, not, not the plate in a baseball uh, in a baseball game, uh, and whenever it's used that way, it's always really clear uh, that it's referring to a plate or a base uh, in baseball. All right, so that's that's how we do English. We don't even think about it, but that's what we do. So the Greek's the same way. So you have uh, the most common definition because that's the most the way that it's used most of the time, and then you have definition number two, definition number t- three, that type of thing. So the Greek language for the word firstborn is proto. Uh, tokos uh, and that word is uh, most of the time when that word is used it's talking about the importance or the rank of an individual so it's like a title you know so and so is the firstborn uh, kind of a thing so when a Jehovah's Witness says uh, says that the firstborn of creation proves that Jesus was created then we go to Psalm 89 27 and it says here, God says, and I will make him, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So there you can tell the firstborn is not talking about uh, being born first. It's, it's an appointment. God says, I will make him the firstborn. And then, it ta- and then what we see by how it's used, the highest of the king of kings is talking about importance. He, I'm going to make him the king of kings. I'm going to give him the position of highest honor. That's kind of the idea. Uh, that's behind it. So in the context of Psalm 89, uh, it's speaking about uh, King David. King David was the youngest in his family. He was not even close to being the oldest. He had many, many brothers uh, that were were older than he was. Uh, So he he was too far removed to be considered the firstborn. But again, what God says is, I will place him as the firstborn and place him as the highest of the kings of the earth. And so that's what happened to David because God did that for him. So uh, also, 
um, when you look at the Greek Septuagint, sometimes uh, when you read through a commentary or book, sometimes there'll be the letters LXX. And when you see that, that means that the author is referring to the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Old Testament in Hebrew. And so there were 70 uh, Hebrew men who were fluent in Greek, and they translated the Hebrew into Greek. And they did that because there was a growing number of Jews who could not read Hebrew, and they wanted their people to be able to read the Old Testament. Um, and so uh, LXX uh, represents the Septuagint, and that's what that is. Um, sometimes individuals have debates about the uh, Septuagint as to whether or not it's really the Old Testament. Well, the proof of that, basically that it's acceptable, was Jesus at times quoted from the Septuagint. So that would be, that would be a stamp of approval. He didn't give a warning. He would just quote from the Septuagint because there would be times, there'd be, again, the word order is a little different, so you can tell there's a difference between the Septuagint and the Hebrew text. Yes, ma'am. Um, you said Psalm 79? No, I said Psalm 89. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Uh, 27. 27. Um, if you use, okay, now the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own translation. They call it the New World Translation. Just so you know, technically it's not a translation. A translation will be, so if you're speaking of the Bible, a translation is where you go from the Hebrew to English or Greek to English. All right? In the New World Translation, what we know they did for a fact, because the guy who did it said he did this, they went from the King James to English. Well, King James is English. But basically what happened is, is the guy, I think his last name was Russell, um, he just um, changed what he didn't like. And so there are several places where there's some word differences in their translation. And one of the things he was trying to uh, communicate was that Jesus is not God. And so there's, there's sometimes a word is added or sometimes certain words are changed or taken away to alter the meaning of a verse. Now, he didn't get them all. He tried hard because uh, there's some passages uh, where you can use the new, if you're ever talking to Jehovah's Witness, you can use actually their Bible and show them uh, at least have them question whether or not that Jesus is actually God because of how their, how their translation reads. Yes? Pastor, will there be any sort of spiritual punishment for them changing the word like that? Yes. If you read Revelation, it, it's right in there, chapter 22. But if you take away or add to the word of God, the street languages, you're going to heap of trouble. <laughs> all right, so there, there is definitely a punishment for that. Uh, all right. So again, um, uh, looking at the New World Translation, let me read, uh, read a quote uh, for you. He says, if they are intellectually honest, they will agree that God did not reverse the order of David's birth. And so the psalmist is not referring to birth order. What the psalmist is referring to was that King David would be elevated in rank above the others. So the preeminent position, to the preeminent position, which is exactly how Paul is using prototokos. Uh, then there's a guy, he's a, a retired preacher named Ray Stedman, and he is speaking on the term firstborn that's used in scripture. And he says, there are other meanings of the word. It is most frequently translated firstborn in the sense of an heir, the owner, the possessor of creation. This is certainly the meaning of, uh, that it conveys here in Colossians. I have found myself recently standing next to Dr. Carl Henry, whom I regard as the greatest theologian alive, and I took the occasion to ask him how he would translate this phrase. This was his answer. 
He said it should be translated, he said, the primeval creator of all things. Jesus is the, is the one who possesses as heir or owner all these things. This sense of the firstborn as owner or possessor is a concept that is strongly supported in the Old Testament. Esau, one of the twin sons of Isaac, was born first. Therefore, he had the right of the firstborn to inherit the estate of his father. But through a strange series of events, Jacob, the other twin, tricked his father into conferring that blessing upon him. He stole from Esau by trickery the right of firstborn. The right to be firstborn was transferred from Esau to Jacob, and Jacob became the heir of the promises of God to Isaac. Thus, we must understand that the one born first is not necessarily the firstborn. In fact, in both Greek and in Jewish culture, the firstborn was the son who had the right of inheritance. He was not necessarily the first one born chronologically. So in the Greek culture, the Hebrew culture, a father had the right to declare which son would be the primary heir. And so if for whatever reason, if he favored another son besides the one who was born first, if he declared that one to be the firstborn, everyone knew what that meant. That meant he was the one who would be receiving the major share of the inheritance. Uh, I don't know how they did it in Greek culture, but in Hebrew culture, the way that it would work is if you had five sons, then the father, when he died, all of his possessions and all they owned would be divided into six portions, and then the one who's the heir would get two. And then he also would be considered the patriarch of the family. So he's the one that makes all the major decisions, and that's who everybody turns to. But again, all we're trying to show here, what all these guys are doing is showing is that in these cultures in which the Bible is written, and in the language used by the Bible, firstborn is not limited to, uh, in fact, it's rarely limited to the individual who's actually born first. It's a title that's conferred on an individual. And so by seeing that, what we see then is that then when an individual says that Christ being the firstborn does not mean uh, that he was created, it's not something we've just made up, right? That would be consistent with the language and consistent with the culture. Um, and so the individual who wants to claim that, oh, no, no, this means that he was born first, they would have to prove their point. Uh, and by the context of how it's used, you're unable to do that. Uh, but that's just so, so when it gets into some of these theological differences, uh, it has a lot to do with language, words, phrases. Uh, sometimes we call this semantics. Sometimes we get a little tired of semantics, uh, but it can be really important. And when it comes to who is Christ, uh, it is extremely important. And so in this passage here, and in some other ones as we work our way through Colossians, Paul continues to use certain terms that continue to make it very clear that Christ is preeminent, that Christ is the highest above all, that Christ is the one who uh, is, is the, he, he actually is the creator. Uh, and you'll see that language as we kind of work our way through uh, what he says. So again, firstborn, which is a prototokos, means first, it means foremost, foremost uh, in place, order, or time. Uh, it's a word that's used for rank or dignity. Uh, it can mean to beget or to bear or to bring forth. So it can mean firstborn chronologically, but again, its primary definition is position, rank, priority of position, and it emphasizes the quality or the kind 
of, uh, of, of what this person is or title, not time, uh, with the idea, again, of being preeminent. So open your Bibles to John chapter 1. I'm going to read quickly verses 1 through 14, and then we're going to go back for just a minute, and I think I put this in your notes so you can kind of follow what we're looking at as to how what Paul mentions in Colossians, it is consistent with what other writers have said. Again, just to show who Christ is. So again, when we gather together as believers, we worship Christ. Okay, that the, uh, a Jehovah Witness would believe that that is wrong, that that's sinful, and that's heretical. Um, because we're not worshiping God, we're only to worship God. Uh, a Muslim, uh, if he has been instructed in anything, would also believe the same thing. In fact, they say that God does not have a son. Now, in their mind, what they're, what they're thinking of is that um, he is a son, like, again, like we have a son. Um, and the concept of the Trinity is a very difficult thing for them to grasp. Uh, but normally, again, but, but they do, because when people are converted to Christ, uh, they have no problem with that. Yes, sir? then he wouldn't be a very good Jehovah Witness because they do believe that he is a son of God because the Bible is pretty clear on that, even in their translation. But again, for them, that meaning only means that in the same way Mary's first child was Jesus, that's what Jesus is to God. He's his actual first child. Uh, they do believe he's a prophet, but... Um, uh, no, they do not believe he's the creator. They believe he is a created being like the rest of us. Um, he may be the most important, you know, all kinds of different words you may use to describe him, but it's clearly he's always inferior to God, and that is created. Yeah, Mike? What's funny is they say, it's just like a Muslim Steve saying he's a prophet and all this stuff. But if he was a prophet, why would he lie about being a Messiah and all that? Well, that's true. But what they, what, for example, if you talk to a Muslim, they'll just say, well, the Bible's been changed. Right. Now, there's no evidence for that. All the evidence points to the fact that the Bible's not been changed, but that's what they're taught. So that's what they will repeat. The Jehovah's Witness will do the same thing. They will say that the Greek text that we get our Bible from has been corrupted. Uh, but again, the way it is with most individuals, they're simply repeating what someone's told them. If you ask them to show you, they, they can't um, do that. But yeah, that's, that is normally how they get around that. That's why often, if you speak to either a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, if you begin to challenge them uh, and you do it well, they won't come see you no more. Um, you know, because they have a map of your neighborhood, and every now and then there'll be certain houses that have an X on it, and that means don't go there. I know that for a fact, because I was talking to a guy who I played football with in college. He became a Jehovah Witness, and I, he was in my neighborhood. This is back when I lived in Hawaii. He was in my neighborhood, and we saw each other, so we started talking. And they were talking, he dropped his folder. And we dropped his folder, everything kind of fell out of it, and there was a map of my neighborhood. And there was a house with a big black X on it. And I said, hey. I go, is that my house? And he goes, oh, yeah. And then he just, without the, he goes, we're not allowed to go there. I mean, you, to, yes. <laughs> and I said, why? What did I do? <laughs> he said, I don't know. But uh, anyway, uh, that does happen. All right, so John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in your notes, if we look again at, at uh, the beginning of verse 1, what I have there was, in the beginning was. So the word was is an imperfect tense, which means it has no beginning and no end. All right, that's, what's, that's, what, that's what the imperfect tense means. And then it says the word and the word was. Again, the word was is the imperfect tense. And the word, and, and with God, and the word was, again, imperfect tense. Uh, and the word was God, he was, and again, the word was, was the imperfect tense. In the beginning, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So this, there's this repetitive use of the imperfect tense with the word was. So John is saying that before there was a beginning, there was the word. So most individuals, when we study this, it becomes pretty clear from the context that the word here is speaking of the second person of the Trinity, which is Jesus Christ. The word was, which again in English can be, we use it for all kinds of things, and we don't really think a lot about why we have some of these words. But when you say this in the Greek, that tense of that word is emphasizing, and then in that sentence, that um, before there was a beginning, he existed. And that's, that's what it says even when you read it in English. But it's, there's a greater emphasis when you look at what the Greek says. That way you can tell that there's, you're not mistaken about what's happening. Uh, and that we would call that the pre-existence of the sun. Uh, or maybe a more accurate way would be the pre-existence of the second person of the Trinity. All right? So the second person of the Trinity has always existed, but there was a point in time when he took on human flesh right, and came to earth. There was a point in time when that actually happened. All right? so, but again, that was not when Christ came into being. He always was, and that's why they go back to creation to emphasize the pre-existence of the Son um, and that uh, he always was. So that's why all that's important uh, for us to understand. That's how we know that what we're reading is correct. And then when you analyze any doctrine uh, concerning or any teaching concerning Christ, then there's ways to make sure that it's always accurate and measuring up to what uh, the scripture says. Because there are those who believe, for example, today, you may not know this, but there are those, uh, like there's a denomination called Oneness Pentecostalism. Okay, so if you know who T.D. Jakes is, that's what he is. He's a Oneness Pentecostal, which means he does not believe in the Trinity. And he does not believe that Jesus is divine. What they believe is a theology called modalism. And what that means is God is one, and God can appear in the mode of the Father, and then other times he comes in the mode of the Son, and other times he comes in the mode of the Holy Spirit. We're Trinitarian, 
We believe God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all exist at the same time. We do believe, though, that's three persons. It's one essence, God. Uh, we can say that in English. We can shake our heads in agreement. We understand it a little bit. We don't fully comprehend that. But that's because he's infinite and we're not. But in oneness Pentecostalism, they deny the deity of Jesus and they deny actually the personhood of Jesus Christ. So uh, now you used to be able to look up T.D. Jakes and go to his church and find the doctrinal statement, but they took that offline. Uh, but he hasn't changed his theology. Um, but there are the, so there are those today who believe that. Uh, there are those, uh, I don't know how many, I don't know if there's very many people who call themselves Christians who believe this, but there are those who have read this, and so they, they do believe this, that Jesus came as a man, he was a good man, and then when he was baptized, when the Holy Spirit came on him in the form of a dove, as you read in the Gospels, that was when he became divine. And then before he was crucified, at some point, his divinity left. And so Jesus, the man, was crucified. And, and sometimes the reason why they come up with that is they're grappling with this idea, if Jesus is the perfect God-man, did he really die? And of course we would say, well, yes, he really did die, but no one is saying that God died. And that's where it becomes, you know, a little hazy. Uh, but we know that Jesus is 100% man. And so he literally died for us. He wasn't pretending to be dead. He wasn't mostly dead. He was dead. Um, but at the same time, we know that God never dies. But remember, he is the perfect God-man. Yes? But then, yeah, Jesus died and rose up three days later. Oh, absolutely. And then he conquered death. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, he, and so we would, what we would emphasize with that is he conquered death as a man, and that helps us to believe and understand that when he says we will conquer death, we will, because we will be raised the same way he was raised. Um, and so, you know, because there's that relationship we have with him as, as a man. Remember, I think I've mentioned it before, that there was that, the controversy within the Christian church. It took about 300 years to try to come up with a solid understanding where the teaching was the same everywhere of who Jesus was. And the big, one of the big points was, was he fully God and fully man, or was he half God, half man? Or was it some form of, uh, and I hate to use the word Gnosticism because Gnosticism is used a lot, but basically the idea he became divine and then was not divine, all of that. So there was a, they, they Christian scholars, etc., met in councils uh, from time to time over the course of 300 years to hash that out. And what they ended up coming up with is what we were all taught when, if you went to Sunday school, you were taught that your first year, who he was. All that was hammered out in a sense, yeah. Of course. But he was, he was saying, well, we yeah, we just wouldn't say it that way. But but in this but we but in one sense it's, it's true. For example, because what we believe is what if I drop dead right now, my body's dead, but I'm alive. I'm not here. Right? I, we what we believe is no, you're alive and you're with God. So you are not dead though you have died. You know, so yeah, very, very much similar to that. We just, I, when I try to explain some of those aspects of it, I just want to always tread carefully because I don't want to say it the wrong way so someone gets the wrong idea. Because it is, it is complicated, but it's not impossible to understand. Yes? Paul's written in the scripture that that's the body of the Lord. Correct. 
Yeah, that's what we believe. The moment you die, you are immediately with the Lord. In fact, again, the, the Greek language is actually stronger than the English uh, because uh, when you look at, the, when you look at the, the English, it doesn't say that you're immediately, but that is the emphasis in the Greek language, is that it is instantaneous. If you're not here, you are there immediately. It doesn't say that. So I just, I'm not going to deny that. I'm just not going to say that. Um, because Christ was doing, because again, Christ is God. Yeah, and so he's accomplishing our salvation and, you know, all those things. But he wasn't dead. In that sense, he was, like, he wouldn't be dead. You know, he's alive, even though his body did actually die. Uh, because he was, again, fully human. All right? Hope that's more than clearer than mud. Uh, yes? Mm-hmm. The way Charles Russell used that edited uh, King James Bible mm-hmm. is, is that like a tampering? Oh, absolutely. Text? Well, he didn't even bother with the Greek. He just he just uh, changed the English. But what they have through the years discovered is that if they they've tried to uh, emphasize some of the smaller ideas of of the Greek language or alter the rules. So I'll give an example. So in John uh, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. If you read the New World Translation, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was a God. Okay, which changes it dramatically. Now what they will say, and they are technically correct, that in the Greek language, the definite article, the, is not there. Because the way we would read it is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was the God, because there's only one God. And so they would say, well, there's no definite article, which is true, but that still doesn't then mean automatically you put the word A, because there's other Greek grammar rules to help you understand what's being said there. They don't mention those. They just say, oh, there's no definite article, so this is correct. So if you don't know that, you go, I, I didn't know that. And so in a sense, they got you. In a sense, um, but so they so they're trying to show from the Greek that it's. I guess they might they might use the word plausible, but they're wrong. They're incorrect. They're just giving you part of the information. Yeah, if and it, you know. So Bob, yeah. if, you, if you don't know, I mean, I know you don't have to you I do believe in one sense it's pretty simple. If you've, if you've been a believer for a while and you've only read the English Bible, it's pretty clear throughout most of the New Testament that Jesus is God. So it doesn't matter what the Greek says. In that sense, because the Greek is not going to contradict, again, what it says. Because if it does, that means the translation was wrong. And we have some excellent translations. So, we don't want, so I don't want to give you the idea that if you don't know Greek, um, you don't know what the Bible is talking about. That's not true. There will be, and that's why I gave the warning in the beginning, that people can use the Greek to mislead, yeah. even though the Greek can be very helpful in helping us to go deeper. Yeah. But the way we understand it in context remains the same. And there are excellent translations, there's at least five that are the best, and you will find a consistency in all five when it comes to the teaching of who Christ is. 
And so if you know that, then you know that uh, whatever they're saying, because God does not contradict himself, is untrue. So you would not be misled. Normally the one who would be misled is the one who is, when I say weak in the faith, that's normally the individual who is, uh, they're not living their faith out. So they're not, so there's a lot of things that are going on there. Um, and also the main, just to be honest, the main, the main reason people convert to the cults has got nothing to do with theology. Because uh, there was a, it's, it's, it's in a book, I think the book is out of print now. But there, this guy did a thesis trying to track down why people who went to evangelical churches would convert and become either Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses. And the figure he came up with is 89% converted because uh, people in those churches, Mormon or whatever, did something nice for them. So he went and followed up on several families and asked them if they were aware of the differences between what they teach about Jesus. And, and the main idea being that those groups deny the deity of Jesus. And to his astonishment, they all said that they knew that. And it didn't make a difference. Well, I guess what, I wasn't asking, could they trip us up? Because we, we, we know. Mm-hmm. But how would you explain to them if you didn't know? Well, you don't always have to. It depends on what, how the conversation goes. Because well, yeah. a lot of times they're not looking for a conversation. Yeah. Um, so, if, if, again, remember, as believers, if there's something you don't know, you don't pretend to know. <laughs> you just say, that sounds like a good point. I've really got to check that out. Can you come back? Okay. Sometimes they will. Most of the time they won't. Uh, that's just what you do. That's me. That's just, you know, because we're going to come across that all the time. We're going to meet somebody who knows a whole lot more than I do, or at least they appear to, or I don't know what the answer is to this, but there must be an answer. I'm convinced there's an answer. I need to find out what it is. So, and I would, and I try, I've tried to challenge them to do the same thing. Uh, I mean, it's been always unsuccessful. I've never seen them again. Uh, but I had, I did talk to some Mormons once when I was living on the Big Island. And so I made a deal with them, and they agreed to it in the beginning. Um, even though I told them that their elder wouldn't allow them to do it. Uh, they said, oh, no, w- no, we can do this. And I said, you give me your three most important books or your three best books, and I'll read them, and I'll give you one, and you read it, and then we'll get together and talk. And, and they said, oh, and they weren't sure at first. And I said, wait a minute, don't you believe that what you have is the truth? I said, well, yes. I said, well, then... I need to convert to that or I'm going to go to hell, right? They said, well, I said, no, it's okay. I can handle it. They said, well, yeah, yeah. You're not going to make it. I said, okay. So if you care for me like you're supposed to, don't you want me to understand truth? They said, yes. I go, great. I want to understand truth. So I got a book here and you take this book and you read it. Give me your three best. I promise you I'll read them. And then we'll get back together again and we will talk. I said, but I bet you your elder won't let you do that and I'll never see you again. I said, so you have to ask yourself the question now, when he does that, what, are the, what is your elder afraid of? I never saw him again. And I don't know if they asked the question, but, you know. But again, the thing, is, the, the thing is, is that as a believer, you don't have to worry about not knowing all the answers to all of these things. The information's out there, and sometimes we just have to say, you know what, I need to look that up. And that's how we grow, um, most definitely. All right. Um, Okay, 
So again, uh, Jesus has always been God. He continues to be God even when, he, even when he became flesh. So verse 16. Verse 16 of Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we have the word for, right, which may seem like it's very insignificant, but it's not. All right, so the word for is used here in what's called a casual sense. And what that means is that when you encounter a word, the word for in a sentence, especially at the beginning of a passage, you always want to check the context to see if, it ha if it's used in a casual sense. What does that mean, casual sense? That, that means uh, we ask, what is, it what is it there for? So in the context of Colossians 1.16, basically the word for introduces an argument to which the preceding words refer. In other words, Paul has just stated that Christ was preeminent in creation. Remember, he said Christ was the firstborn. So he is preeminent in creation. So now Paul explains how or why that is the case. So in short, he is preeminent because he is the creator. So that's what the word for is there for. He, Paul is now going to introduce an argument or, uh, to explain what he just said or prove what he just said. Christ is preeminent. This is how we know. All right. Uh, so basically, in, as you study the Bible, I think you'll find this to be true a lot of times, and that is, even though the Bible presents truth as truth, and it's just straightforward, and it's here, you must believe this, this is the word of God, it always continuously explains why that's true. It's never just, just believe it. It's, this is how we know. So when we say Christ is preeminent, Christ is above everything else, and that he is to be worshipped, why would you say that? Well, because... According to this, this passage, he is the creator. That puts him in a whole new category. He's not just some created being. He's not, you know, a superman. He is God. Everything that was made was made by him. And so Paul's now going to explain that uh, in this passage. So there's a reason then we can, we can give reasons or we can study reasons as to why God tells us we should believe or do certain things. Uh, the Bible continuously... Um, seeks to address us in the way that God created us, meaning that we're, we automatically look for evidence, we, we automatically adhere to things that are logical. Um, remember, being logical does not mean you're some brainiac. Everyone is logical, everyone. If you've, if you've ever been around your kids, or if you've raised kids, your kids when they were young were naturally logical. You watch them try to figure things out. You tell, like you tell them one day that you're going to do something and then you try to back out of it uh, and say something else another day, the kids will say, but you said, and of course they have these incredible memories so they can exactly tell you what exactly what you said because you're looking at it what? Logically. Which means that if you, <laughs> if you don't do this right, they would say they're going to know you're lying to them. Right? And so, that, but all kids do that. Some do it better than others, some are more vocal, but kids think, you know, we have to learn how to be illogical or maybe to accept it. poor logical, poor reasoning. So that's how God has created us. And so the word of God is written in that way to appeal to that and to help us to understand. That's why within Christianity, and this is what bothers most critics of Christianity the most, 
And that is, we are normally the only ones who are saying or asking the question, how do you know it's true? Right? Religions don't normally ask that. If you were to study the, the Baha'i faith, no one in Baha'i is saying, this is how we know this is true. That is, that's not an issue. If you study Hinduism, it's never, this is how we know this is true. And here's the, here's the evidence. They don't do that. All right? What it is, is be quiet. This is, I mean, this is how you learn. This is what you are to know, kind of a thing. So within Christianity, we are asking people of other faiths, as well as asking our own faith, how do we know it's true? This is how we know. And so when we, that's why Christians talk about the Bible being accurate historically, because that makes a difference. The, the, the book we're using, and we say we draw truth from, has to be accurate historically. If it's not, what do we have? Right? So then archaeology becomes important because it ends up continuing to prove that the Bible is accurate. Um, the Bible is accurate in everything that it speaks about. So that lends credibility to the Bible. So when we talk about God, the Bible is an author authoritative book because it's true in everything it says and everything it talks about. And when people try to disprove the Bible, they don't just say, oh, it's just silly. Some do. But what they try to do is to show that it was inaccurate or wrong historically or in archaeology or what have you. They try to do that. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. They're always wrong uh, in, in their attempts to do that. But that's always the, why is that the attempt? Because we are the ones who are saying we know it's true. And so uh, this, this reasoning that, that Paul is getting into to help us to understand how we know Christ is preeminent and why we are to view him that way, he's now giving us the reasons for that. Uh, and so, once again, these words that he uses here are really, uh, really very important. So I'll, I'll just start on this. We'll, we'll just review it a wee bit when we uh, come back. But, uh, so verse 16 says, for by him all things were created. So, so the question then should be, what does it mean by him? So literally, and some of your translations will have this, it won't say for by him, it may say for in him. Be, neither one is better than the other, so to speak. The, the, neither one is inaccurate, uh, but it is literally in him. And basically what that means is that Christ is the sphere within which the work of creation takes place. So, that, so those first three words then are really very important. For in him or by him immediately sets the stage that what he's going to talk about, which is creation, everything takes place, everything in creation takes place in a sense within this sphere of who Christ is. And that's what's being explained there. So all the laws, all the purposes which guide creation and govern the universe, all those things reside in Christ. Uh, now, I don't, you know, we're gonna, every now and then we've got to kind of jump ahead of ourselves, but this idea that we as Christians accept, we believe that all of creation is upheld by the word of God. What we mean by that is when you study in science all the various laws of the universe, the law of gravity, that, those kinds of things, all that means is we're just describing what we are observing. But why does gravity work? Well, they can get into where the earth spins at such and such a speed and it does all these things. Yeah, but why is that happening? So in the end, what, what we believe is that because all these things reside in God, or we would say in Christ, that's why all those things work. You take God out of creation, you have chaos. You don't have all that stuff. So everything is dependent. So that's what's, that's what's kind of being said here, uh, in, in a sense, is that all that, that's going on, all the laws, all, the, all that is in Christ. 
He is the creator and the sustainer of all of creation. So the world exists because God does. We actually exist only because God does. Um, and, that's, and that's what this, this uh, verse is getting at. Uh, there's a Greek and English dictionary called Vine's Expository Dictionary. It's pretty good. Um, and this is what he says. The guy who wrote it is dead, but it's, it's an old standby. He says that the, that the word in him describes him or describes Christ as the designer, the one who, in fellowship with the Father, determined the condition of all things and the laws which govern and control them. So as you begin to look at all the, these places and all these different definitions of just that, the Greek word, which is translated in him or by him, there's a lot of meaning in that. It's just not just some little, oh yeah, he did it all. He, they're saying all these things reside in who he is, and it's helping us to see the intimacy of the involvement of Christ in creation and how all of it is uh, dependent upon him in every way. And of course, the more we learn about science, the more we learn about creation, the more we learn about this world, whether it's bi biology or whatever, the more we learn about that, the more incredible Christ is because all those things function the way they function and work the way they work because it all came from the mind of Christ. I mean, it's, that's pretty astounding, to say the least. Um, and that's what all this is getting at. So again, the preciseness then, and also the depth of the Greek language is helping us to see as we deal with who is Christ and who is God, that it is giving us maybe in one sense more than we bargained for. Not that it's a bad thing, it's a good thing, but we're seeing really how incredibly great God is, how incredible that Christ is, and, and, and so it's, it seems like only the natural thing would be to worship him because all this is true. So I have, a, we won't go through it now, we'll stop and pray, but I have a quote there. Uh, the guy's name is John Eady, E-A-D-I-E. Uh, there's a set of uh, commentaries uh, by this guy. It, it, they, they use a lot of the Greek language uh, in those commentaries. So if you want to go out and buy it, you might want to look at mine first just to see if that's something you want to you really get into. But it's very good. Um, and uh, the guy has a really good way of explaining certain things. So we will, we will kind of hit back on this again and try to fully develop uh, the phrase by him or in him so that you can grasp all of that. Yes, sir. Talking about the lines for the commentary, how does that compare to the Matthew Henry's commentary? Matthew Henry is a good commentary. It's what I would call devotional. Okay. So, that, so, so this is not a negative thing, right. but basically it's not going to be as deep theologically or exegetically as some of the other ones. So it's good, and, that isn't, and it will have a lot of profound things to say, but it's not as in-depth as some, as some others. So there's all kinds of commentaries written for all kinds of reasons. So Matthew Henry is very good. It's not going to mislead you, but there's others that go more deep, like into the language, and develop more of what's actually there in the text. Well, uh, there's, they're all, there's a lot of them. I read, because I read all kinds, as far as, like, for example, I read Matthew Henry, not as much as I used to, but I used to, you know, Matthew Henry, there's several different ones. Uh, so it just kind of depends. Huh? Matthew Henry Yeah, so what they did was they just, they just took, yeah, they just took the Matthew Henry commentary and someone or a group of men shortened it up. 
And just like, for example, let's say he, for example, let's say in a verse he gave five illustrations. They cut out four of them. So now, he, boom, it's shrunk down. Uh, if he's making a point and he makes the point eight different ways, they took out six of them. Uh, so that's kind of, that's how they condensed it. So they're both good, um, but. Huh? The, uh, the vine's not a commentary, it's a dictionary. But it's, an, it's what we call an expository dictionary. So they, he gives a definition of the word and then he expands on that definition, the way it's used, uh, how it's used, and, it's, and a fuller meaning of it, not just giving you a one sentence definition. And you can get that online, it's free. That's online, free. You can find those, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's several older commentaries you can find online for free. Uh, because the copyright date's gone and all that kind of stuff. Anyway. One thing about Matthew Henry commentary is there's a commentary on every single. Yeah, he did the whole Bible. And then he gets really, really deep, deep, deep into each. So it could be, I mean, it could really long. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't do the deep. No, it's fine. Yeah, he does a little bit. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace. And we just pray, Lord, that again, as we kind of kind of work slowly through this passage, we pray that you help us to, to be able to recognize and comprehend the vastness of who Christ is, the greatness of who Christ is. Uh, and then just sit back in wonderment, Father, as to, again, your love for us and the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. We ask, Lord, again, that this will encourage our hearts and strengthen us and remind us again of who it is that we worship. And that it really is true in every way and helpful uh, in our lives as we live our lives out for your glory. Keep us safe, Father, as we travel home. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.